0: And I welcome you back this evening as we continue through a series called God's Amazing Grace where we look at stories of the unmerited gifts that God has given his people uh, throughout the Bible story and thinking about the ways in which he extends to us as well. And this season, of course, we're focused as we talked a little bit about the grace challenge this morning. Uh, and it occurred to me just as I began to make a list in my mind of all of the ways in which giving is involved in this season, especially at Northside. Um, we've done a lot of that through the year with the, the Grace Challenge. But at this time of year in particular, uh, when you think about everything from the winter coats to the Magi, Magi boxes to the uh, holiday boxes, uh, people are giving little gifts. Uh, someone gave me the Newberries, gave me this Little bell here tonight, that's very nice, thank you for that. And uh, you receive lots of of, of sweet treats and, and nice little things around this time of year because that's that's sort of the flavor of the season, right? Uh, one of the most powerful gifts you can give someone in my opinion has to do with not giving them something and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. If you open your Bibles to John chapter eight. It's where we're going to be as we think about the idea of mercy. Now, from a a legal standpoint, mercy, uh, uh, the legal word for that, uh, looking down at Carl, my lawyer in residence here, uh, is is clemency. The the legal act of extending to someone that which they do not deserve or uh, someone in the executive member of the government being able to give them mercy to someone who's already been convicted of a crime who, by uh, every measure within the human legal system, uh, they're guilty. Uh, but the, the, you know, be it the judge or be it the, the, the president, uh, so anyone with that power has the right to extend to them from a legal definition, i am going to give this person mercy." And always is quite a scandalous thing. It's wonderful if you're the person who receives the 11th hour pardon uh, or the some person who's been to extended clemency, but it's unjust by design. We, we understand what justice is, and mercy is making this so we're not going to follow through on what this person deserves. I ask you, maybe you haven't been in a position of receiving legal clemency or pardon, But uh, if you are in Christ, certainly you have been given great pardon spiritually. Tonight we look at a story that's very pointed, and it was being used. It's a a wonderful example to us of mercy and pardon, but it was being used in Jesus' day as a trap. Now think about that for just a moment. The, The Lord who desires mercy and not sacrifice is being called into a trap which will involve mercy and sacrifice. Our text tonight is, as i said, found in John chapter 8. If you're not already there, you could turn there now and that would be beneficial to you as we look in depth at this story that is probably well familiar to a Sunday night crowd. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around uh, gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Jesus said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, What do you say? As we just let the silence hang in the air, as no doubt it did. They were using this as question, as a trap, John goes on to say, in order to have a basis for accusing him. And we'll get to that, what they were trying to do, and specifically tenets of the law. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any of you who is without sin... Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. First of all, let's talk about the crime. What does the Bible say about the charge, the crime of adultery? What does the scripture say? Adultery was a very serious sin with very serious consequences. It's hard for me to understate that. In today's world, it is not so. Uh, there are, there, are, there are websites where people can go to cheat in their marriage it's it's quite ubiquitous it's accepted it's in some cases just uh, considered as a natural something that you know it's unreasonable to expect monogamy from anyone and that's the culture we live in um and maybe to some degree that was the culture they lived in, but they had these guardrails set up in the law. In Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 uh, says the consequence for that sin. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife and the, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. The severe part about adultery was not the physical act, it was the spiritual violation. It personified, it brought into the flesh the breaking of a covenant. God used this sin often to represent his relationship with his people. You'll remember he called a prophet of God to take an unfaithful woman, a promiscuous woman, as his wife. Hosea chapter one, verse two, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now I pray that you've never been the victim of this sin, uh, but if you have, I would tell you that, uh, just from having counseled people and hearing stories, uh, it is one of the most, it is the most, one of the most heart-wrenching sins because it takes someone who is connected to someone, particularly in covenant with them. At one time, they made pledges to one another that they would be forever faithful, and then one, Left that covenant and God is saying to his people Israel through Hosea, you are like that. You made a covenant with me in blood and you violated that covenant again and again by worshiping other gods. The land is guilty of unfaithfulness. Um, In Ezekiel chapter 23. God says, for they have committed adultery And blood is on their hands. They've committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. Uh, The spiritual adultery uh, that God charges Israel of. It's just heartbreaking. It's covenant breaking. Jesus, of course, in the New Testament reminded us that adultery was much more than just the physical act. It started long before in the heart. You've heard that it was said, Matthew chapter 5, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus raises the standard infinitely high. There was a story long ago of a president who admitted that he had committed adultery in his heart many times. And the world made fun of him for that. But he was sincere in taking the words of Jesus seriously. Now, all of that just gives us a little bit of biblical background. But what what really is happening here is that the Pharisees are seeking to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. They are putting him between Moses' law and Caesar's law, between justice and mercy. Understanding that, let's go back through the story one verse at a time. First of all, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. No, light, no doubt, Jesus probably spent the night, previous night in prayers was his custom. And then he proceeds, after his normal custom, to his regular place, the temple courts. And I love to think about this, because Jesus here is 30, 31 years old. You know, he's been doing this for 20 years. Remember the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, when, uh, you know, uh, his parents lose him. Which is concerning because it was supposed to be God with us and all of a sudden they look around and God isn't with them anymore. And so they they kind of backtrack and they trace their steps and they go back and they find him in the temple courts even at 12 years old doing what he would be doing much of his public ministry. Just astounding people with wisdom. At age 33... Uh, At the end of his ministry, Mark records that Jesus says these words, Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures had to be fulfilled. If anyone wanted to find Jesus, especially in his public ministry, and, and likely even before then, all they had to do was go to where this story takes place in the temple courts. Now, sometimes the lesson is not the lesson. I can still remember many years ago... Uh, I was sitting about where Brady Weathers is sitting. And I was the youth minister at the time. And I can't remember if if it was Sunday morning or Sunday night, but I do remember that Lewis Tandy was speaking. And Lewis Tandy was giving a sermon, and I don't remember the subject of the sermon because of what happened before the sermon. Well, see, what happened was the youth group, as it often is these days, was the, the section where the teens sit was absolutely just full. It was a sardine can. And there was... A group of girls, and I want to say that they were in this area. Now, service had already begun, and a, a, a teenage girl walks down, and it's clear, she, you know, from this vantage point, she cannot tell that it's full. But she's realizing that as she gets there, she's got a decision to make because everyone now is watching her and wondering. She, she has no place to sit. She doesn't know what to do. And so in that moment, just I imagine a moment of sheer terror, like everybody's looking at me and and my friends are all here, but I can't sit there. And so she just does this number. She just comes up and sits meekly on the front row now. What happened in that moment was beautiful because there were about three or four teenage girls who saw what happened and said, no, no, no we're not going to be that kind of youth group. We're not going to let her bit up there, sit up there in the front row. And so here come these three or four girls all the way around and they just sit beside their friend all in the front row. Like there was revival in the church. All these girls in the front row. Now, the whole church has seen this, right? Now, now Lewis is getting ready to preach and I think he's probably sitting up over here and he gets up. And he gets prepared to preach a sermon. And he, before he even puts his notes down, his Bible, he just said, I want to tell you that what you young ladies have done is commendable. Because that's the way to be. That's the way Christians are. And, of course, he said it much more eloquently than I did. But he he pointed out, he took a, he made a lesson in front of what everyone saw. Now, I tell you that story because... Forever in my mind is this impression, this beautiful example of love and connection and oneness as a youth group. And I'll forever remember that lesson. I don't remember what Lewis said. This is one of those moments in Jesus' life where everyone's going to remember what they saw and what they experienced and what they witnessed. Right in front of them, maybe not the text that he was expounding upon. And sometimes teaching happens in that way. As he was teaching, in came the lesson. Here comes the lesson, okay? Now, it wasn't in the form of a, of a teenage girl who was just a few minutes late for worship. It was in the form of an angry mob of Pharisees and a mortified woman. Here they come. His enemies set a trap. They brought in a woman. Why not the man? Don't know. Scripture does not say. My guess is uh, this doesn't have anything to do with the crime at hand. If it did, uh, they surely would have brought in the man. The, the, The Pharisees, they were not concerned about justice. true justice, they were concerned about trapping Jesus. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You know, we get to the heart of it. They were not concerned about her. They were not concerned about the him of uh, the, committing the adultery. They were trying to accuse him. They were trying to accuse Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is an unusually cruel trap because they they made her stand before the group. Imagine such a scene if you can do it. Think about think about go into the farthest corners of your mind. The sin that you've tried to hide, the sin that you've tried to ignore, whether you were caught in it or not. Think about the worst sin that in your own estimation, not anybody else's, but in your mind, the worst thing you've ever, ever done. Now, imagine being paraded in front of a crowd of people and in front of your Lord for the purpose of entrapping your Lord. And you are just... Caught in it. Now remember the law. The law said in this particular sin she was worthy of death. However, the problem here is, and the trap that they're trying to set, is that the Roman law put the power of capital punishment within Caesar's hands and Caesar's hands alone. Remember in Jesus' crucifixion, there was this whole back and forth uh, because they had to get the okay by Rome to make it happen. They they had to get Rome to say, yep, we're going to do that. I mean, the crucifixion was a Roman instrument and it was not to be something that any of the the, the nations that they ruled that, that belonged to rome alone for them to be able to put someone to death the power of capital punishment <clears throat> now here's the thing if jesus is just if he says yes the law says that that's what we need to do go ahead and stone her he's going to be in trouble with rome they know that and and to caesar they will go uh, that he, he's, and, and, and also, he's going to be seen, of course, he was, as a man beloved by the people, he's going to be seen as pretty heartless and very compassionless to authorize the execution of just the woman caught in this sin. But if Jesus goes the other way, and he says, no, 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 no brothers, come on now. The Lord loves mercy rather than... Sacrifice. If Jesus is merciful and he holds back the law, he will be discredited as a rabbi and forever. They hold it over his head. Ah, he refused to enforce the very law that he he claims to have written. He rec- refuses to stand up for the God that he claims he is the son of. Now, all of this is kind of go- happening. And, and, and before we go any further, I want to just exit off the road here. Get off on the exit, come to the stop sign, and take a little side road for just a minute. You know the story of David and Bathsheba. I don't have to repeat that entire story from 2 Samuel 11. In that story, David commits uh, adultery with Bathsheba. David was not only committed adultery, but he was responsible for Uriah's death, her husband. And yet, David was not stoned. Why was the law not enforced? Uh, there were consequences for the sin. Don't misunderstand. He suffered four times. As uh, Samuel said, he shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing and had no pity. And he paid fourfold. I mean, when you look at the whole story, when you look at losing the first son and then then the, all of the sons that he would have division and strife and nearly split the kingdom over, uh, Amnon and Absalom and Ad- Adonijah, uh This was a great sin that he paid for dearly, but but he wasn't stoned. David still repented. If you read Psalm 51, he absolutely repented and realized what Samuel had hoped to make him realize was that he was the man. But there were still generational consequences for David. Why why am I bringing this up? Because adultery... (laughs) is a part of Jesus' lineage. Matthew chapter 1 says, Jesse had been the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and so so on. There's something deeply personal about the sin of adultery, and, and it didn't... It, 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 there's that old song, oh, does Jesus care? I know he cares. I mean, but Jesus, this was something real. In his own lineage was this this problem of of two people had committed adultery, and it's right there, in there, for everyone to see. In fact, it can't even name the woman, the mother who had been Uriah's wife. It is deeply personal, and I have no doubt, I will not ask for a show of hands, that it, it's affected some of you in here. It's a trap that is set for him. And Jesus presents the truth, uh, verses 7 and following. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. He puts, he puts, he puts her life in their hands with this warning. Those of you who are without sin, go first. The law required a witness of of the sin, the one who observed it to begin the execution. I I think maybe perhaps he was calling out their insincerity because, because perhaps in the crowd no one was there who had witnessed it but i also think that it made them think to ask this question as he stoops on the ground are you are you so, so sure that you want justice are you quite sure that you are ready for all sin to be dealt with so severely Matthew chapter 7, scripture we've covered before. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, My question for you is, would you be able to withstand the weight of your own judgment? Do you apply the same measure to yourself that you wish applied to others? Most of us cannot be so consistent. The longer I live, the more merciful I grow. Why is that? Because I realize that even I don't live up to my own expectations. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. No doubt why the older Began to leave first, maybe the wiser. Maybe they understood that they had been had. Maybe, maybe this is what he was writing in the dirt. What's, what's he writing in the dirt? Commentaries, great amounts of paper and trouble have been, have been dedicated to what did Jesus write on the ground. We don't know. My favorite thought is that perhaps he was writing their sins in the dirt. Sins that only he and they would have known. As he asked the question, are you sure you want justice? Are you sure? Their response, of course, is that they show mercy. The older ones first, realizing that they had been had. And the younger ones realizing that their case was gone as the older ones left them. And and in this beautiful, surreal lesson that Jesus temple, teaches in the temple courts is, in my mind, a picture of this woman and Jesus surrounded by a pile of rocks. Now, what's cool in my mind, in my weird brain, is... That in the Old Testament, a pile of stones, a pile of rocks, was a memorial. It was to be used as a conversation point between the generations where God did something here. I'd like to think in my mind that that pile of stones still exists today. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But perhaps at one time it was a memorial To what happened to a woman that day. So what about the woman? The woman is shown mercy. The grace, the undeserved favor for her was mercy. For not getting what she deserved. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 and 23. The scriptures spell out clearly that the Lord loves Mercy. The the, the mercy matters to God. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faith. For the law, John says, was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you understand that Jesus personifies mercy and grace? He personifies Hosea chapter 6 verse 6, where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is the living, walking, breathing Word of God that, that justice, justly, could require a sacrifice for all of us, but mercifully, he shows all mercy. Your sins, my sins, here's this beautiful thought, whatever they are, they are no greater than the mercy of God. John chapter 3 verse 17, for God did not send his world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. If he came to show justice, if he came to give us justice, rather, who could stand? I mean, there would be no one here. There would be no sermon tonight. But because he took and became our justice, he could show us mercy at the cross. And that's what he came to do the grace the undeserved gift in this story was mercy she didn't get what she deserved and she was being and she was being shown the truth in being told this last part to leave her life of sin jesus not only didn't give her what she didn't gave her what she didn't deserve but he gave her new life by calling her to leave her old life. What what can we possibly hope to take from this? Uh, unless you're a woman caught in adultery, uh, you may not think that the lessons apply very much to you. Well, we can take a lot of lessons and those lessons are simple, but they are not easy. My simple challenge tonight is to have mercy, to be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. My my guess is uh, That in your life someone has wronged you. Uh, They probably did it on purpose. Uh, They probably wronged you in a way that hurt. And that there are times you mull that over in your mind. Just thinking about what you might say if you could ever come up with the courage to say. Or what you might do if it was ever just you and them in a dark alley somewhere. Probably someone has done you wrong knowingly or maybe not, and if they haven't, they will. And you have a choice in that moment. You can hold on to your stone, grip it for all it's worth, white-knuckled, ready to chuck it as hard and as fast as you can to pay them in turn for the harm that they have caused you, to look for every opportunity to cast it their way. Or you might consider this. How many stones you have been spared yourself. How often God has shown mercy to you when you didn't deserve it. Longfellow wrote, being all fashioned of the self same dust, let us be merciful as well as just. Jesus said it better than Longfellow. He said, be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. Do not judge. And you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So let us then be merciful. The brother of Jesus put it this way. James chapter 2 verse 12. Speak and act. As those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy, catch this, judgment without mercy, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May we practice mercy. May we seek mercy. And finally, let us love mercy. Micah 6-8, well-known scripture. Uh, he has showed you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, it, it, it's not just about practicing mercy, it's about loving. Mercy, Isn't that a different way of thinking about it? I mean, how in the world? I mean, I can perhaps show someone mercy. Perhaps I can think of an instance where I was shown mercy, but being called then to love mercy, not because mercy is always an easy thing to give, but because God loved mercy and showed it to me. May we practice it, may we live it, and may we love it. I know that he did that because of what he did. On the cross. Romans chapter 8 says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. God loves mercy. He loved it enough to send His Son that He might show us mercy. He lived out mercy so that we might live it ourselves. Tonight, the invitation is this. Now, I I realize there are some who may need the mercy and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. And if you do, please respond to the invitation, and we'll be glad to help you in that way. But let me raise the bar as we close. If you are a Christian, and you want the mercy of God... The price of that is being willing to extend it to those who do not deserve it, just as Jesus did. So may you extend mercy to the person who wronged you. What I want you to do here is is I'm going to make your faces look angrier than they already look. I want you to imagine the person or two or three who have wronged you. Just go ahead and do it right now. Put their face on my face, okay? Okay. Do it. God needs you to show them mercy. Not because they're worth it. Not because they earned it. Not even because they apologized. But because he loved you enough to show you mercy. And if you want his mercy, you have to extend to others that same mercy. I want to finish tonight not just by calling you to respond to the gospel, but I want to close in prayer. I want to ask God to work in you to show the mercy to others which he has shown to you. Please bow with me, Father. Father, it is immensely difficult to even imagine showing mercy to those who have... who you, Father, you know what they did. Father, you know what they said. Father, you know how how righteous we were and how innocent we were. And they just did that and they don't even care. Father, you alone realize more than most how hatred erodes the container in which it lies. And, And that hatred, that enmity, that holding on to, that desire for justice will eat us up. And so, Father, I pray that tonight we, starting in our hearts and then moving and and, and acting in other ways if need be, may show mercy. May we no longer condemn them, not because they've repented, not because they they apologized, not because they, they came to their senses, but simply because we need to be freed from it. We need to be to be lifted free by showing mercy. I, f- I pray that this can happen in hearts tonight, whether they respond or not. But Father, if there are people who are really struggling with holding on and and with wishing for righteousness and justice and and wanting what's fair and wanting what they're owed, I, I pray that they might respond tonight. That we might pray with them. That our shepherds might pray around them and for them that they might show mercy and that they might learn to love mercy. Father God, thank you for loving mercy over sacrifice. For if there were if it were any other way than that, Father, we surely could not stand. But because of your great love for us, because Jesus took on the justice that we were owed, because he became our righteousness, because his blood atoned for our sins, we can have your mercy. And we can never fully comprehend or wrap our finite minds around that, but Father, thank you for it. And Father, tonight, may we, may we live out the mercy which you've shown us. May we give the greatest gift in the world, which is not to give something that someone else is truly owed, because you've showed that kind of mercy to us. Thank you, Father, for that grace and for that mercy. If there are hearts here that need to respond tonight, work as you will, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a need tonight, please respond. Please come forward. We'll pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.